live from wherever you happen to be, it's the SNL Hall of Fame Podcast. And now, here's your host, curator of the hall, Jamie Dew. Hey, what's up, folks? It's Jamie Dew here back again for a, another week inside the SNL Hall of Fame. Please don't make me remind you again. Wipe your feet before entering the hall. This week, we have a fantastic show. We are going to be talking all about Tina Fey. Now, it's going to be interesting because we're talking to maybe one of the biggest Tina Fey fans there is, and also a pretty big fan of SNL. He is the proprietor and producer of the SNL After Party podcast, which you can find at SNL Podcast on all the socials, or you can go to snlpodcast.com and get access to the website there. Now, John isn't always on hand because he is traveling the countryside in an RV doing some really cool shit right now with his kids that I am envious of. And I think it's going to be tremendous. We don't get into that in the episode, but you know, there's some context for you. Now, you might notice that this episode is falling inside the writer category parameter. And you might be asking yourself, well, if it's the writer parameter, why is it Tina Fey? Uh, you might not know that Tina Fey started as a writer on the show and worked her way up to be the head writer, the first female head writer in the history of Saturday Night Live. And to this point, the only female head writer, as far as I know it, uh, somebody can absolutely correct me. Uh, I'm more than willing to be corrected. I think that um, something to point out is this interview was conducted prior to the you know, the relaunch of the podcast. If you can, if you can find those lost episodes out there, there's five lost episodes that are a different format, a different style and uh, a little bit different. And this comes from those sessions. In fact, a lot of the interviews come from those sessions. However, I think that the content that we go over is, you know, apropos enough that you need to hear it because John makes a brilliant case for Tina Fey to be in the SNL Hall of Fame, albeit at my behest as a cast member. So the interview is me pushing him to talk about her cast member ways rather than her writing ways, which I'm sure he could have gotten into. But as you may have noticed so far on the podcast, when we get into SNL writers, it's a little more difficult. Because unlike the present times where we have access to who's written what, long ago, we didn't have that kind of access. And so it's very difficult to tell who wrote what. And I want you to think about this as you cast your ballots in May for writers. There will likely be less writers on the ballot than there are you know, hosts or cast members or even musical guests for that matter. Yes, you did hear me right when I talked about uh, voting. Voting is how this whole apparatus works, ultimately. These episodes are just here so that you can get a sense of the bona fides of the nominees as we add them to the ballot. Prior to kickoff of voting, there will be a recap episode where we recap all 
the nominees, and maybe we have a couple special guests uh, cast their ballots live on the program. And then we'll open up balloting, tabulation will occur, and we'll find out who gets to walk away with the plaque. Now, I have heard a couple people mention to me that they would be interested in designing a plaque. Uh, that sounds really cool to me. I think that, uh, you know, when and if the hall becomes a physical site, <laughs> plaques will be necessary. Right now, it's virtual. And, uh, you know, it's sort of what it is. But anyway, I'm blabbing on here, aren't I? I'm talking way too much. We need to get to the man of the hour, Mr. John Murray, as he adds Tina Fey to the ballot of the SNL Hall of Fame. Have you read Bossy Pants? Yeah, I, I think I bought a digital copy the day it came out. I actually read it on my way to New York in 2011. I remember. I, I listened to the audiobook driving into New York. That, that's my fond memory of of Bossy Pants. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Did, did, did she um, do the the reading? She did, yeah. Oh, that would be wonderful. Because that's yeah, such so a... Me and Tina Fey in my car for 11 hours just... Talking about life. It was. Oh, it was you wonderful. must have been in heaven. <laughs> I was. Yeah. No, my, um, <laughs> my affection for Tina Fey crosses many, many lines, but, um, it, it's a good book. It's a solid read and, uh, so. you know, pithy and funny. Yeah. Uh, I can highly recommend it and some fun insights about kind of how the show works and just her approach or the, the era that she was at yeah. the show, kind of how things were working. What I really loved about it and reading it, it, um, it, it struck me like a baseball bat is when when she finds the theater and it's mm. like um, yeah no everybody really needs to find their people and it, and it is interesting when <laughs> when you it, it'd be like you know uh someone who is like an expat or they're the children of an expat and they like visit their parents homeland for the first time and they're surrounded by people that just like look like them and eat like them and think like them. And, and it's like, wait, these people exist. Like I have a community, like I have something that is uniquely for me. Um, it's a, it's a wonderful moment when, when we get to walk through that door, hopefully we get to, you know, find that at some point in our lives. But yeah, it was fun for her. Cause she, she makes no, uh, bones about how, um, ill-fitted she felt in high school like she you know she she had a, a gaggle of kind of weird friends but just nothing that really made sense until she kind of found theater tech and then you know second city in chicago so uh it, it is interesting that tina fey along any different trajectory you know like what what would that have looked like not not a whole lot because it, it seems you know in hindsight that that it's really the only thing that she could have really thrived in like she's a go-getter and a hard worker and i mean she would have been fine no matter what but what a a wonderful institution for her to be able to find her way to that could really capitalize on her unique gifts it's uh, yeah it's it's just a it's a really nice thing 
that organizations like Second City or now, you know, so many others in, in Chicago uh, exist where uh, kids can can chase this muse that would have been so inaccessible uh, just, you know, 20 years prior to when Tina Fey, you know, approached it. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, without getting into uh, a big historical thing, Tina Fey found her way to New York mm-hmm. and ended up as a uh, on the writing staff of Saturday Night Live at one point. Yeah. And she worked her way up to head writer. But what we're going to talk about today is her the performance side of Tina Fey. And before she became a cast member, she showed up on the show and I don't have the exact date in front of me. I'm going to I'm trying to look it up on my little spreadsheet right now. Maybe you have it in your head. Or maybe you just know it. November would have been about 97, 98. 97. November 15th, 97. You got it. Yeah. And I don't have a little side note as to what it was, but I'm guessing it It was. was, I I know exactly what it was. She had a butch character. She she had a, uh, almost like a trucker kind of character that that's kind of something that she had that she would pull out for these uh, sort of occasions when they needed a, a nondescript audience member. Really? Yeah. <laughs> and you, and, um, do you, do you remember it in hindsight? No, no. I think at one time I went down a rabbit trail. This was probably like peak Tina Fey for me where I was like, well, I'm just going to, you know, hit up her IMDB page and see some of the other stuff that she did before she was famous and, you know, rummaged up some of her UCB stuff, um, that was committed to tape some bit parts that she had a a commercial she shot in Chicago and somewhere along there. I, because I have a pretty solid archive of vintage SNL episodes, I tracked down, you know, where she made appearances as, as bit players or non-speaking roles or whatever. Um, and that's, I believe the first one was, was her, her, um, whatever delicate word, her lesbian character was, I I think maybe her first on-screen appearance for SNL. Okay. Well, and then, okay. So then from there, she took over for Colin Quinn at the desk. That's when she officially became a featured player. And I'm pretty sure that was 2000 officially Wow, when she took over that role. Yeah. But she'd been at the show since about 96. So she, you know, she definitely already kind of made her mark enough so that Lauren had seen the potential of transitioning her to cast and, uh, they, you know, flirted with that idea for a season or two while she, uh, tried to maybe get herself a little bit more on air ready, so to speak. Uh, just sure. er, get her confidence up and, and, uh, you know, she talks in her book about, she went on a crash diet to, you know, drop the, the 20 pounds she brought with her from Chicago or whatever. So, uh, yeah, she was kind of, what would you say? Kind of like an ugly duckling, so to speak, but eventually the ugly ducklings turn into swans if Lord Michael says so. <laughs> so yeah, she, she participated. The Colin Quinn was getting ready to leave. And at that right. point they had had a litany of male centered, uh, weekend update, um, yes. cast from Dennis Miller to Norm to, uh, Kevin Nealon to Colin Quinn. And then they screen tested a pair they, they screen tested a few people, I think, at that point, right? Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, the- it, it, she wasn't like locked down. Um, her and Jimmy did their own set of tests together. And there were other people in the cast that they tried to, you know, see who had a good dynamic or who had good chemistry. Uh, but that's obviously what they went with. Yeah. And it was really, I remember at the time it being 
sort of shocking, right? It was like, wow, this is a throwback to um, the seventies. This is a throwback yeah. to Jane Curtin and, and Dan Aykroyd, mm-hmm. you know, sort of thing. And and who are these people? We've got we've got the guy who always laughs in the sketches, <laughs> and uh, and this this writer person, <laughs> you know. And yet, pretty quickly they they developed a voice. Yeah, yeah. I I think the the game was pretty clear from the get go that she she was in charge, and you know Jimmy's just kind of a a doting little boy, more or less. Like he's <laughs> he he's there to have fun. He's a slacker, and she's no nonsense. She's the one that's keeping the show on the rails. Uh, that was kind of their dynamic, and it was fun. You know, it it, it made for some good back and forth. It wasn't really like what you had with Jane Curtin and Dan Aykroyd, where both of them were kind of a presence and a force on their own. Jimmy leaned into how inept he was and that made his fumbly delivery more charming. And then, you know, they'd throw back to Tina and and she'd land something, you know, scathing and dark and weird. And you're just like, where did that come from? So it was just kind of a, a neat, uh, switch up for the guy to be the goofball and for the, the girl to be the one sort of pushing the boundaries of what weekend update could be. Charm is a perfect word for it. They Mm -hmm. really were charming. And from that point on, you can, you can look right up until now, although it's starting to get a little bit tired. Um, there, there's a certain charm to weekend update at this point, you know, and it can go back. It can be traced back to Mm -hmm. the, you know, that pairing. Yeah. There's a very clear line of pre Tina Fey weekend update and post Tina Fey weekend update. She really built the template of what we've seen ever since, you know, we had Seth Meyers on his own at a certain point, you know, him and Amy Poehler did it for a while and then he just did it on his own for a bit. And then, you know, Cecily to make that transition. But as far as how jokes are structured for update, what the delivery style is, uh, what the, you know, the back and forth potential can be of having two people at the desk and, and how that really is a, a rich vehicle for weekend update. That was all pretty much laid down with Tina and Jimmy and they keep going back to it because it just, it always works better. Unless you've got someone like a Seth Myers that really can just own it. And, and he's got enough of his own voice that him into camera without ever needing anyone else to spice things up is enough. Unless you get someone like that, uh, the Tina Jimmy format, you know, it's persisted now for what? 20 years. Yeah. 20, 20 years. That's quite a precedent to set. That's quite a template to establish. Uh, she is also at this point, the head writer. She is the, she's the co head writer of the show. But as a performer, John, why do you have her in the Hall of Fame? I was mulling that over in anticipation of having to make a case for. And it's funny because it, it is a little bit of a, a tricky nut to crack because by her own admission, she doesn't really consider herself as a standout performer player on the show. She saw her role squarely as head writer and weekend update. But I think if you are willing to dig just a little bit deeper on what Tina brought to the show and how much the show evolved, uh, because of her influence, not just backstage, but also, you know, through update. And then in a lot of other stuff where maybe she didn't put herself front and center, but she was still a driving force in, in a lot of seminal sketches. Um, something starts to emerge and you begin to realize that even though, 
maybe she was just modest enough to never feel like she needed to fight to be a star because, you know, when you can generate material, you can write yourself in it and she could do what she wanted. She, she stuck with where she thought she could do the most good at the update desk, but rarely ever misfired when she was in anything else outside of the desk. So I, th- I think there's something to be said there about um, her ability to serve a sketch without necessarily needing to steal the focus. But the flip side of that is there's a lot of sketches when you look back on them where it does all rest on her and she just always knocks it out of the park. I, I can't remember a time where she fumbled a line or where a character wasn't fully realized or where there wasn't just something star worthy about her presence. And it makes me think that if she hadn't ended up at the desk, she could have been a real force as a player, especially when she's got, you know, Maya and Amy to, you know, to kind of just generate with and, and for the three of them to figure out, you know, fun tour de force performances. Uh, I think she really could have stood out and shone in a whole different way on the show. And it was her choice to not do that, but you get these little glimpses of fearless performances, uh, smart performances, Uh, surprisingly well-realized characters, even though she'd never consider herself an impressionist, she just, she never misfired. And I think that is an argument in, in favor of her as a player. And, you know, to build on that, we could get into what she accomplished at second city that made her a standout performer prior to coming to the show. And then we can look at her career afterwards and, you know, 30 rock and so much else where, uh, she's, she's really kind of made a name for herself as a performer aside from the fact that she's also producing and writing those shows as well. So I don't know. She just, she seems unstoppable. Like at a, at a Carol Burnett kind of level, she seems unstoppable, even though Carol Burnett is such a a big personality that it doesn't seem fair to compare the two. I feel like you should compare the two. I think that's a really great comparison actually. And it's not one that I'd ever considered prior to you mentioning it. She, she absolutely could have taken the Dana Carvey route and, and done a, program after SNL that wasn't, you know, a sitcom, Mm -hmm. but was another competing, I guess, sketch comedy show. And I think people would have tuned in for sure, just by virtue of her name. Yeah. When she got the desk, she got her name out there and she became a personality. And then of course, obviously Sarah Palin, you know, helped that (laughs) that situation. That's a a home run. Yeah. Obviously home run. Uh, but yeah, there was a certain time right around 2009 where she had enough cachet that she could have done anything she wanted. Fortunately, she'd already developed a really smart project that I think really capitalized on her abilities nicely, where she could be seemingly the straight person surrounded, you know, in a, in an insane asylum surrounded by the likes <laughs> of Tracy Morgan and, uh, you know, Alec Baldwin and all the rest of them. Uh, but how effective her, her presence in those scenes is at, helping to elevate the comedy and, and, you know, she's goofy in that show as well. So going beyond SNL, I I think if you look at 30 rock, even though she is maybe the only sane person in that show, she delivers some really funny lines and has better timing than she'll ever admit. And just, just really steals so many scenes in that show, uh, against people that are so much louder that, uh, I think that also feeds into the whole argument of what Tina Fey can do. Talk to me a little bit about some of your favorite Tina Fey moments that that aren't 
Sarah Palin based. One that I came across not too long ago, just in passing, just watching an old vintage episode. She did a cold open where she is one of the Bush daughters and it's her and Amy Poehler and they're coming home after I think a Bush inauguration or some, you know, uh, high society soiree. Not daddy. Congratulations. Sleep tight, you two. Dream about freedom. <laughs> daddy, I always knew you were going to be a two-term president. <laughs> right back at you, Jaybird. <laughs> oh my God, Barbara. I'm so wasted. <laughs> Do you think he could tell? Probably. You were line dancing and your shoe totally flew off. Oh, God, Barbara, I got the spins. Jenna, I told you not to drink straight tequila. I didn't. I mixed it with Captain Morgan. I can't believe you threw your gum at those protesters. <laughs> I was exercising my God-given right to protect my liberty from evildoers. I was so bored by the end, I started playing this game that anytime anyone said the word freedom, I stuck a little piece of oriental chick mix up my nose. <laughs> I was so drunk, I made out with Dick Cheney's daughter. Cheney? What? Not the gay one, duh. I can't believe we gotta sleep in this room for four more years. Not me, I'm getting my own place. I'm gonna get a cool job designing fashion or teaching deaf kids to read or something. <laughs> and I'm gonna buy a totally badass condo in downtown Houston. And I'm gonna be like, suck it, Vanessa Carey. I'm living large. <laughs> oh, I'm so drunk. <laughs> Jenna, do you think daddy's a good president? <gasps> oh my God, Barbara, how can you even ask that? I don't know. I, I see all those people holding up signs that say, worst president ever, and dumbest president ever, and biggest liar ever, and it makes you wonder. Well, don't wonder out loud. Jenna, we're twins. We have to share our most secret thoughts about everything. Well, it's disrespectful. Just answer me in our secret twin language. <laughs> Barbara, we haven't used that language since we were like 19. <laughs> Do be you but think but dad's but good but president. <laughs> but yes, I but think but he's but really but good. <laughs> but what about the but weapons of but mass but destruction? <laughs> but they but weren't but there. But Barbara. You heard the dad's be speech. We're be spreading be freedom. Saddam be Hussein was a be bad, bad be man. I but no, but but the be war in Barack is a big be ship at be storm. And but what about be social be security? I be read it isn't be really be gone be bankrupt. But but be allowing the people to be vest. Their retirement money in the private sector is smart because, um, oh, dang, I don't know. This is giving me a headache. You just think you know everything because you went to Yale and I went to UT. 
Oh, Janet, don't say that. Yale's not so great. And UT has a real pretty fitness center. <laughs> hey, y'all still up? Your mother asked the chef for some more of that creme brulee, or as I like to call it, freedom pudding. <laughs> no, thanks, Dad. I'm tired and Janet's got the spins. Don't be tell him I'm be-blasted. <laughs> but it's so bobvious. What are y'all talking about? <laughs> but tell him it's be-food be-poisoning. I never could understand this crazy twin talk. It's hard. Daddy, did you see Arnold Schwarzenegger tonight? Wasn't he so awesome? Oh, you missed it. I went up to him and I said, Hey, Terminator, hasta la vista. I'll be back. That's funny, Daddy. Do it again. Hey, Terminator, hasta la vista. I'll be back. <laughs> All right, lights out. Big day tomorrow. Fun was had. Let's not push it. All right, girls. I'll see you tomorrow. Good night, Daddy. Good night, Dick Cheney. By the way, I be heard by everything but you, but what we're saying. <laughs> Go to bed. Amy Poehler's Bush daughter is drunk, which is something, you know, ripped from the headlines because one of the Bush daughters was known to be a, a partier. Um, and anyways, they just have the most adorable back and forth where they have W's trademark imbecilic nature. Like neither one of them is smart, but they both have completely different worldviews and they just have this conversation about trying to understand if their dad is the bad guy or not. Like they, they just, they hear things in the news and they just don't really understand. Like, is it, is it all true or, you know, are we spreading freedom? Um, and, and it's just because the two characters are so simple and are, are such kindred spirits. They have, uh, a really kind of poignant conversation and, uh, and, and just really paint a, a really charming scene. Again, I'll come back to my word of the day for Tina Fey. Like there's just something very charming about what she brought to that character. And, uh, you know, at the same time she was involved in the writing on that as well. So, you know, that a lot of just the, the brilliance of how they tackled the Bush daughters and then all the other characters that kind of walk through the scene as well. It isn't just her performing it, but she helped craft the character. So even though we're talking about Tina Fey as performer tonight, we have to remember that she has to create the character sometimes too. So, you know, she writes it, she figures out what the brilliance is in it, and then she has to realize it on screen. And that's kind of like all the aspects of performance right there. And uh, I thought that came across in that sketch really well. And there's so many more. I mean, we could, we could run all night with, uh, you know, things that are brilliant that Tina Fey's done on air at SNL. But that was just one that I came across a couple weeks ago, just through happenstance that really charmed me and reminded me of Tina Fey at her best. What else can you tell us about her, you know, hall of fame trajectory? Well, aside from being really capable with everything that she did on the show on update and you know the few times when she was well utilized outside of update 
obviously there's, there's a whole chapter to her SNL story that happens after she leaves the show. You know, it, it begins with Sarah Palin, which you would think would be a fairly easy character to realize. And she just had the look and maybe it was just serendipity or just dumb luck, but she took that character. She found all the folksy charm of the real Sarah Palin and married that with some really brutal delivery a la Seth Meyers to not really, you know, pull any punches on maybe we don't want this person as our vice president. Cause maybe she's not really ready for prime time. Like she didn't <laughs> shy away from that. You know, it, you, you look at it and as fun as it is and as, as kind of joyful as the character seems to be all the time, they're really cutting into Sarah Palin pretty significantly. If, if you want to, yeah. you know, look at it from that side. Um, so I, you know, I just, I think that that is a better political caricature than SNL typically is able to realize there's, there's been very few times where there's been a political caricature that, uh, kind of, is timeless or, you know, just becomes one of the, well, the hall of fame impressions and she's not even an impressionist. So for her to figure out how to take, you know, her, again, she does these regional things like a, a Midwestern or in this case, more of a Minnesota kind of accent and somehow turn that into Sarah Palin. Um, you know, that's no small feat. And that puts her right next to Daryl Hammond's Clinton and right next to Will Ferrell's Bush. And, or, you know, Dana Carvey's Bush. So, I mean, the fact that she got into the pantheon of like the top five political uh, caricatures is no small feat. And she didn't even necessarily want to do it. She literally showed up, you know, the day of the show and just went out there and did it and found some brilliance without really a whole lot behind her other than some decent writing from Seth Meyers. So time out for a moment here. I mean, what you're saying is that was a, that was a guest performance. And I don't, I don't know that there are any other hall of fame candidates that built, you know, right. um, their most memorable work happened after. Yeah. That yeah. built a, a solid career, like a solid, very solid career on the show as a performer, but bookended by, by this post career special guest performance. Right. But to get to the nut of my question here is when they do special guest performances, they're not there for the, they're not there like on Tuesday or Wednesday or whatever. They're sort of showing up oh. and no, they might come in for a fitting the day before or something or a makeup test or something like that midweek. If it's their first outing and they don't have wigs yet or whatever, like they may come in for some production stuff, but you know, the cold opens aren't even written until, you know, late Friday, Saturday most of the time. And in this case, the way it worked out was she had other obligations with the 30 rock production that she couldn't really skate on. Like she was filming a scene, I think with Oprah Winfrey. And when you're able to box in Oprah Winfrey, you don't reschedule, right? Like Oprah no, Winfrey gave her like, that. you know, a half day or something to, to knock out a cameo for the show. And so Tina Fey wanted to obviously stick with that and pass on Palin because she's just 
didn't feel like there was enough hours in the day to do them both. And Lauren Michaels just decided to let her know that there were in fact enough hours and that, <laughs> you know, even though she'd passed on the Sarah Palin role, um, he was really excited to see what she was going to bring to it Saturday night. And, uh, she understood that she was very much in the gravitational field of Lorne Michaels and there was really no escaping it at that point. And so of course she rallied and just did what a brilliant performer does. She, she showed up, she wrapped her head around the character. She brought her all to the performance and she knocked it out of the park. That is clutch. That is so <laughs> That's clutch, clutch, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That is so cool. Um, I can't even wrap my head around how, I mean, that was a renaissance for the show. Oh, it was. Yeah. Like absolutely that, not to say the show was, you know, mired in, in the drags or anything, but, but for sure it put so many, the next, the next day it was water cooler talk. What it did was it breathed life into their political commentary, which was the icing on the cake of an era that was already shaping up really nicely because we're in the midst of the lonely Island really coming into their own. You have a killer cast, you have, you know, a killer, um, anchor at the desk in Seth Meyers. And I think maybe Amy Poehler was still there at the time, but, um, yeah, she was still on the show. So she would have been at the desk too. Um, so you had maybe one of the greatest ensembles since the first five years. And then on top of that, you've become relevant again in the political sphere. So basically she was the the last piston that started firing that got them banging on all cylinders. And they rode that wave until about 2013, which, you know, that's a solid run. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. Wow. I mean, uh, obviously she had a lot of the shorthand um, in place, you know, right. I, I was, I was very surprised to hear you say that they would just show up like that. But, but again, she, you know, she knew her way around, but still that is really quite fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, again, she's got this, this bookend, um, with her career and this special guest, how many times, and I'm not looking for a number here, but I'm looking for like a ballpark, I guess. Did she... Did they, did they play with that character until ultimately they paid it off with, you know, her meeting the real Sarah Palin? Oh, not, do, you, do you recall? Yeah. Not that many times they did it. I'm going to say maybe, maybe four times in the run up to the election. And then she's reprised it a few times afterwards, just anytime there's a reason. And well, basically pretty much anytime she's hosting, they figure out some reason for Sarah Palin to show up for a minute or two. Um, (laughs) So she's probably done it. I don't know, somewhere between a half a dozen to a dozen times, but don't quote me on that. But in the lead up to it, it was almost exclusively cold opens and, and typically, you know, the podium fair or, you know, the infamous interview one where, you know, Katie Couric, or Amy Poehler as Katie Couric is asking her some seemingly uh, softball questions and she just gets some punctual. Governor Palin, thank you for agreeing to talk with me one more time. Oh, hey, you know, sure. <laughs> Did you enjoy your week in New York City? You know, I did, Katie, and I wasn't sure I would at first. New York is, of course, home to the liberal media elite, but Todd and the kids had a great time going to the Central Park and and the FAO Schwarz and that goofy Evolution Museum. (laughs) 
So it sounds like the trip was a success. Well, there were some funny moments. For instance, I had 15 to 20 false alarms where I thought I saw Osama bin Laden driving a taxi. (laughs) I was embarrassed to be wrong, but mostly disappointed I wasn't right. (laughs) Also, in an effort to bone up on foreign policy, I went to the Times Square area to see a film called The Bush Doctrine. It was not about politics. You went to the UN for the first time. How was that experience? Oh, you know, it was just amazing. So many interesting people. Though I have to say, I was disheartened by how many of them were foreigners. (laughs) I promise that when Senator McCain and I are elected, we're going to get those jobs back in American hands. How did the world leaders you met with react to you? They embraced me, Katie, both figuratively and a couple of them Pakistani guys, literally. But they were all so welcoming, be it from Hamid Karzai, the president of Afghanistan, or Jalal Talabani, the president of Iraq, or or Bono, the king of Ireland. On foreign policy, I want to give you one more chance to explain your claim that you have foreign policy experience based on Alaska's proximity to Russia. What did you mean by that? Well, Alaska and Russia are only separated by a narrow maritime border. You've got Alaska here, and this right here is water, and then that's up there's Russia. (laughs) So we keep an eye on them. (laughs) And how do you do that exactly? Every morning when Alaskans wake up, one of the first things they do is look outside to see if there are any Russians hanging around. (laughs) If there are, you got to go up to them and ask, what are you doing here? And if they can give you a good reason, they can, then it's our responsibility to say, you know, shoo, get back over there. Senator McCain shut down his campaign this week in order to deal with the economic crisis. What's your opinion of this potential $700 billion bailout? Like every American I'm speaking with, we are ill about this. We're saying, hey, why bail out Fannie and Freddie and not me? But ultimately, what the bailout does is help those that are concerned about the health care reform that is needed to help shore up our economy, to help... um, It's got to be all about job creation, too. Also, too, shoring up our economy and putting Fannie and Freddie back on the right track. And so health care reform and reducing taxes and reining in spending because Barack Obama, you know, you know, we've got to accompany tax reduction and tax relief for Americans. Also, having a dollar value meal at restaurants, that's going to help. But 
one in five jobs being created today under the umbrella of job creation that, you know, also... Lessons have you learned from Iraq, and how specifically would you spread democracy abroad? Specifically, we would make every effort possible to spread democracy abroad to those who want it. <laughs> yes, but specifically, what would you do? We're going to promote freedom, usher in democratic values and ideals, and fight terror-loving terrorists. <laughs> But again, and not to belabor the point, one specific thing. <laughs> Katie, I'd like to use one of my lifelines. <laughs> I'm sorry? I want to phone a friend. <laughs> You don't have any lifelines. Yeah. Well, in that case, I'm just gonna have to get back to ya. <laughs> Forgive me, Mrs. Palin, but it seems to me that when cornered, you become increasingly adorable. <laughs> Is that fair to say? I don't know. Is it? Pew, pew, pew. <laughs> Governor Palin, is there anything else you'd like to say other than live from New York at Saturday night? Yes. Live from New York! <laughs> and, you know, it just runs with, with some, some verbal diarrhea for like 30 seconds. And the brilliance of the piece being that they basically snipped that word for word from the real interview. And they didn't have to heighten it at all for comedy. They just let Tina Fey deliver what Sarah Palin delivered. And you realize instantly just how hilarious the whole situation is just what a farce the whole situation is again that's i i for my money that's political humor at its best yeah that's so i mean that's yeah that's really wonderful um and so cool when they actually you know did do that face to face yeah when they you know when they when it pays off, I suppose, right? Uh, um, I think nice for the audience. I, I don't know if either one of them was particularly comfortable with the situation, but everyone's, <laughs> you know, Sarah Palin or Tina Fey, they're both industry pros and, uh, you know, everybody did their job. So is there any, um, any one thing that you want to comment on before we button things up? One way to judge maybe a true SNL Hall of Famer is what they're able to do from their SNL introduction because the people that have genuine star power and just really have it, the thing that is going to drive successful vehicles in entertainment, it's inevitable. If they had it when they were at SNL, they have it when they leave SNL and somebody figures out how to make money off them and puts them in the right movie and, you know, <laughs> careers are launched. And so if, if that becomes a metric, if that's a yardstick, if that's something you can use to gauge a true hall of famer, as it would have been for Chevy chase, Dan Aykroyd, uh, Bill Murray, maybe to a lesser extent, Jane Curtin, um, Gilda Radner, they, all of them had successful vehicles outside of the show afterwards. 
Um, so if, if that's kind of something that can be quantified, is there anyone from the last 20 years, uh, and I don't include Will Ferrell cause I think he just literally fell off the 20 year <laughs> time scale, uh, maybe this week. Um, but is there really anyone who has turned their run at SNL into more into like just more of a machine than, than Tina Fey, like the number of shows that she's gotten greenlit that she's been intimately involved in crafting and, and fostering and bringing to the screen and sometimes starring in, um, you know, who's got, she's what she got four or five series off the ground at this point that, that have at least run a couple seasons. Uh, I mean, she's got a couple going either on or in development like right now well yeah like, I mean, well, two or three, they, right? they just uh the the one about the the mayor's office just started the ted dancing one the yeah. mayor one with, yeah with uh my boy bobby moynihan uh which yes if there was any reason to make tina fey a hall of famer it's that she finally came up with a vehicle worthy of bobby moynihan and uh you know that's just <laughs> one more reason why i love tina fey but seriously she 30 rock kimmy schmidt uh great news this new one and so many others that uh are somewhere in de- in the development process, but she's, she's turning out a lot of TV uh, and some yeah. of the funniest TV that we've had in the last 15 years. And on top of that, uh, when she brings her presence to those shows, those are usually the standout episodes. Like yeah. she launches these shows and she wants to be in the background, but at a certain point they realized the shows need a Tina Fey bump. And so one or once or twice every season, she'll pop in as a different character and it's always gold. And there's just, I don't know. There's just something about Tina Fey that I will never get tired of, of seeing show up and just do what Tina Fey do. Hey, listen, if, if, if all she did was SNL mean girls, 30 rock and bossy pants, if that was I it. mean, that's a pretty, fucking dynamite career sure <laughs> you know and let's but we haven't even talked so about more. movies like there was date night which is a pretty solid comedy baby mama yeah. which was fun uh a little bit of a event well like a indulgence for her and amy poehler but uh people don't seem to get sick of seeing those two together either and so many more like she'll even you know if if um paula pell or emily spivey or someone's writing a project she's down she'll show up for it she's she's still one of the girls and just you know uh, a, a team player. So what ha, have you ever heard anyone ever say anything even slightly bad about Tina Fey? Any, any no. Hollywood behind the scenes, misbehavior hijinks? No, she's just, she's just this humble girl from Philadelphia that turned out to have way more talent than you would have expected. And, uh, the work ethic to just see these things through. And I don't know, that's a, that's a rare find. It's a rare find indeed. Wasn't that great? Wasn't that fun to just listen to those, you know, very memorable moments of Tina Fey appearing on the show and, you know, raising a ruckus, as it were? For somebody who is going into the hall in the writing wing, she performed the shit out of that show. She really did. 
she was a uh, a master chef. I'm giving the chef's kiss right now. So that's your argument for Tina Fey. If you've got an argument against, send me an email, jamie at snlhalloffame.com. I would love to hear from you. That's what I've got for you this week. Next week, we'll be back with uh, a brand new episode, and we are going to be talking to Andy Hogland, and he will be adding Norm MacDonald to the ballot. So that should be a fascinating episode in light of what recently has went down with Norm and his passing. Uh, I'm sure it will be a nostalgic episode, and it will be wistful and sad, but also celebratory. And I hope we have a laugh or two, because... That, to me, is how Norm would have wanted things to be. I don't think, uh, based on how he handled things at the end, he necessarily um, wanted us to, you know, grieve or or uh, think about the fragility of life. Instead, he wanted to make us laugh, and that is what he did indeed. So that's what I have for you this week. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Please visit the site, snlhof.com. You can register to vote there, or when the time comes, you can simply use the socials to vote. But uh, registering will ensure that you get a ballot in your inbox uh, at the appropriate time, and we'll go from there. Last thing I can uh, beg for is subscribe to the show and tell your friends about it via social media our handle is snlhof on twitter and instagram we have a facebook group as well where people can you know sort of jam on things and uh if you get the chance rate us in apple podcasts if you listen using apple podcasts it's a real handy way for podcast creators to get some credit but for now that's what i have to say to you so turn out the lights on your way past because the SNL Hall of Fame is now closed. Thanks for listening to the SNL Hall of Fame podcast. You can find everything you need to know about the show at snlhof.com. Don't forget to subscribe, share, rate, and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. This is Doug Denant saying, this is Doug Denant saying, see you next month in the hall. Cast some such.